Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host. I'm Marianne, and I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. I started this series of episodes on New Zealand cryptids, it was only ever meant to be a one-off episode. But as I started researching these subjects, it just simply took on a life of its own. And I realised that I couldn't do these subjects justice in one show. As I mentioned previously, this would be the last in this series on New Zealand cryptids and also my favourite subject in this area. Supernatural beings are a part of all cultures worldwide. There are not many, if any, cultures in this world that don't have a vision of these interdimensional beings. They go by many names dependent on where in the world they are found. But there are not only one variety of these beings, there are many. Here are some names a few of them go by. In Ireland and in the British Isles, they are called the Fae, Fairies, Pixies, Leprechauns, the Seelie or Unseelie, the Banshee also being a fairy type. In Hawaii, they are the Menehune. In the Greek culture, nymphs or satyrs. In Germany, they are elves. In the bayous of the Deep South in the USA, they are called Fofolet. So many different names all over the world for these fairy folk. In the native New Zealand or Maori language, they have an overall name for supernatural beings. They call them Heiwi Atua. But we also have many names for these fairy folks. Here are some of them. Patuparehe, also called Patuparehe, Paerehe and Parehe. Turihu, Korakorako, Tahurangi and Hekito. All names used in different regions of New Zealand by different iwi or tribes. What do these elusive beings actually look like? Are they simply the stuff of myths and legends, or are they really a living species? In this episode, I'll share with you all descriptions given of these folks as handed down by the local iwi or tribes, and also share eyewitness accounts of experiences with these beings, some of them rather touching and some scary. So, let's begin our journey into this part of the New Zealand Shadowlands and see what we can discover about our own Patuparehe. I feel a good way to start this episode is to first discover what these beings are supposed to look like in New Zealand. In the Māori tradition, Patuparehe had some human attributes, but were regarded not as people, but as supernatural beings, or Heiwi Atua, 
and they are said to have some of the powers attributed to the world of the fairy in many other parts of the world. Some folk tales of the Māori describe them as little people, but the native stories don't usually picture them as the tiny elves and fairies common to the British and European traditions. These beings were seldom seen by the iwi, however, for the most part, when encountered, their language was able to be understood. Their physical appearance varies a little from region to region, although, overall, they are described as being very pale or white-skinned, albino even, or the colour of red ochre, with red or fair or sandy-coloured hair. It was believed the cases of redheads and albinos, the urukehu, among the Māori, were a result of the union between Patipaarehe and the Māori. Their eye colour varied from light blue to black, and they never had tattoos. There is some debate about their height, so there is a possibility that perhaps they may be able to present their height in different ways. The Tuhoi tribe says that they were small beings. Others say they were similar in size to humans. Whanganui stories claim that they are in fact giant-sized, more than two metres in height. Sunlight is said to be a curse to the Patipaarehe. They only venture out in the night or when the mist is heavy enough to shield them from the sun, such as with the children of the mist, the Tuhoi Iwi Patipaarehe. These beings were hunter-gatherers who ate only raw food. Cooked food is said to be an abomination to them. In some stories, albino birds and eels, red flax and red eels, were considered to be the sole property of the patipaarehe, and woe betide any Māori caught taking these. The patipaarehe men were known to lure people away from their homes, particularly really attractive young women. They would use the magical sounds of the puturino, a type of flute, no harm would befall the young woman and they would eventually be returned home. One of my guests in this episode had this very sort of experience with a patipaarehe in a valley near Taupo only a few years back and I had wondered if this might have been what happened with her. Her experience is a little later in this episode. Unfortunately, men were not treated so kindly, often mistreated and sometimes killed. They were also said to lure children away by mimicking the voices of other children or of loved ones, or by calling them by name. If you did not want to be abducted by the patipaarehe, there were several options available. Firstly, you could smear your house with kokowai. This was a mixture of iron oxide with shark oil. The smell was repugnant to them and very likely to us as well. Secondly, the uses of the cooking ovens or a fire, as the patipaarehe are very much afraid of fire and the smell of cooked food was enough to scare them away. But it wasn't all bad between the patipaarehe and the Māori. Some traditions tell how the Māori gained the knowledge of net making from the patipaarehe, as well as makatu, magic arts, and atahu, love charms. String and stick games are also said to have come from these supernatural beings. This is Rua, who is kind enough to give us some further clarification on these beings. Firstly, he is talking about the Punaturi, who are like the Patipaahere, 
but these beings were sea-dwelling. It was rumoured that they had a hidden land under the sea, and that's where they lived during the day. They feared sunlight and fire, which was justified because sunlight apparently was fatal to them. At night they would creep out of the water and sleep in little huts on the shore. Punachiri, they are very much like the Pachipaira here, but they belong to the seashore, to the sea. Okay, and they're only, only as tall as the knee. And they have sea wings. Okay, they can't touch the earth. They can't touch the earth crust, but they can come along and use the sea to go through the winds because when you look at it scientifically, this is how we get our rain. It goes sea, wind, clouds, rain. And that's how they travel to come across the earth, come across Aotearoa. This is why Puna Turi called Puna Turi because they're able to do that. Right. And they are Pachipaere here, govern the night because it's lighter for them because of gravity, for them to do the works that they need to do the works. The Puna Turi, they come in the, in the gaps of the dawn. And when the, the first light comes up, they remove themselves. Oh. If it rains, they're allowed to come out further through the light. So if it rains, it's cloudy, they are able to travel. Okay, the punachuri, they're like gardeners. They are, they, they are the gardeners of the air. So where you have an earthquake with the lava coming out, that's part of their garden. When they come, when it comes out here, and things happen here, um, main, main explosions. They are coming to sort the air out. And then, when after explosions and after earthquakes, you'll get a rain. Mm -hmm. Hey, to put the air back to how it is and fertilize what's been exposed into the air. So they are the like. People say they're like the air people, but they're more of the sea, and they're only allowed to come out when it's raining during the day. But their main potent time is dawn, and soon as it gets dark in the afternoon for the next possible hour. There's two types of patsupayari here. One type that they belong to the clay and the cliffs and the rocks embedded in the earth, and they're known as the as they are known to be the people of those physicalities. But they are very much, um, what do you say in English? They're very much, very similar to probably saying a creature in such a way. So you wouldn't call them a fairy? They're more like an elf or a um, goblin? The, yeah, yeah, goblin. And then you shift to the second Patsupoyera here, that you call them a fairy. And so the second one is the one that goes into Māori bloodlines. Oh, wow. They are the ones that sacrifice their, their life as a goblin in a certain way to be part of the rock and the clay people, culture. And they decide to rescind that and being given the chance to love the human. Wow, that's and that's where the, the, 
the old stories go, the Māori folk story, sorry, I've been telling this off. Um, this is where it goes in all our tribes that we have links directly to Patsupaira here because of the interlink, because of the love affair that a Patsupaira had. And in some stories, married a princess of a valley and changed himself to be a human, but their child carried the blood. And that Patsupaira here became a human with different formalities, physical formalities. And the other one is the unformed or extra formalities of the physical flesh body. Those unexpected things that we carry. Right. And it's not worldwide. And the colour here is where the red comes in, the ginger. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask if that was related to them because I remember seeing that that documentary which my son put me on to the um skeletons in the closet have you seen that no it's a new zealand documentary it's really good so when when people clear the land they're clearing patipoidehe and punaturi away so when when man starts building and putting streets and roads it is cutting them right out and that was the other reason um, my, my elder, my grand-uncle says that the more we build, the more we lose the essence of our ancestors being with us daily. Florida people, this is a uh, quote or kōrero from Hawane Nahi from the tribe of Nati Maru, uh, recorded in 1894, and it was to talk about the or the fairy people, as we well know it. Atena kote kato, kotene te kōrero na hoane nahe mo Nati Maru ki 1894, ki Na Patupayarehe. Now listen, when the migration arrived here, they found people living in the land. Matikura, Matikorakorako, and Matiturehu. All haku or sub-tribes of the people called Patupayarehe. The chiefs of this people were named Tahurangi, Fanafana, Nukupore, Tuku. Nipiro Aitu, Taputa Uru, and Te Rangipuri. The dwelling places of these people were on the sharp peaks of the high mountains, those in the districts of Hauraki, Thames, Ah, Moiho Mountain, or Maunga, Cape Colville, Motutere, Castle Hill, and Koramengi, Maunopaki, Whakariri, Kaitarakihi, Te Korana, Te Korona, Hore Hore, Whakaperu, Te Aroha a Uta, Te Aroha a Tai, and Parongia at the Waikato. The power villages and houses of this people are not visible, nor actually to be seen by mortal, mortal eyes or tangata Māori. 
that is their actual forms. But sometimes forms are seen, though not actually known to be these people. Sometimes this people is met with by the Māori people in forests, and they are heard conversing and calling out as they pass along. But at the same time, they never meet face to face, or so they mutually see one another. But the voices are heard in conversation or shouting, but the people are never actually seen. On some occasions, also during the night, they are heard paddling their canoes or waka. At such times are heard these questions. These are the questions that are asked or heard. What is it? Ehatera. Who are the people who were heard urging the canoes on the sea during the night? Or who were heard conversing and shouting in the forest? The answer would be as follows. They were not tangata Māori or people. They were atua, patu paerehe, turehu or kora kora, kora kora ko. That was read by Puru Afero. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate you lending your voice to this episode to honour the words of this kaumatua or elder. Puru also has had experiences of his own with the Patipaarehe and he talks very briefly about some of what he has seen. When I was younger, probably before I turned 20, I was living in the Wanganui area, Matahini, up the Wanganui River to be exact, and I used to go do a lot of hunting and growing vegetation. I heard a lot about the Patu Pai up there, and I'd didn't believe until I actually felt and saw something and yes it's sometimes you see shadows in the forest sometimes you see a blurriness similar to like on the movie alien was it alien predator sorry predator so yes uh, I have had some of my own personal experiences up the long and very real they are very real and can be very harmless Yes, Where are they found? The patupare here were generally found deep in the forest or on mist-covered hilltops. In these isolated places they settled and built their homes, sometimes described as forts. In some stories their houses and pa or fortified structures were built from swirly mist. In others they were made from kareo, a supplejack vine. In the North Island they were said to live mainly in the Waikato, Waipa Basin, the Cape Colville Te Aroha Range, the hills about Rotorua, the Uhurewera Ranges, and Waharoa Districts, the Waitakari Ranges in the Auckland regions, and the areas mentioned previously by Ho'ane Nahe. The South Island traditions had them living mainly in the hills around the Littleton Harbour, Akaroa and the Takitimu Range, and in the hills between the Arahura River and Lake Brunner. This is an experience that was shared on Gary Cook's website, Secret Land, Sacred Sites and Ancient Mysteries.
Affidavits had been taken and recorded of two in-depth interviews that took place with both one Martin Dautre and Gary Cook present. This is the result of that interview. The man who gave the information has recently passed on, and in deference to his request, he will be known by his birth name or Maori name. His name is Karaka Paikia Horui, and he was of the northern tribes and lived near Whangarei. We now turn the clock back to 1946, when Karaka and his wartime friend Peter were building earth dams on Rehab Farm in Waima. Working as a team, they operated a dragline and bulldozer unit for many months in this remote valley. On some days after work was finished, they would pick up their twenty-two rifle and go hunting. Now, in those days, there was little thought given to what might have been right or wrong, and they hunted for wood pigeon. They took a few, and the bird was considered a tasty delicacy. On this particular November afternoon in 1946, the two men had finished work and decided to go hunting. They entered the tree line on the lower slopes of a very steep incline and started their search for the bird. On that day, their quarry was quite elusive and the flight of a pair of pigeon up toward the top of the hill led them further up into an area that they had not previously been. Karaka told us that being young and very fit, they were not deterred by the very long climb. They came up and over the final rise and found themselves on a large flat area covered in long grass broken by a number of bush clumps. Resting for a moment, Karaka loaded the single-shot rifle and scanned the treetops for any sign of the pigeon. Peter was standing to one side and moved to gain a better view of the trees on the other side of the clearing. His foot snagged and he stumbled and yelled. Suddenly, almost from the scrub at his feet, five small figures sprung from behind the bushes and ran away from the two men. Both Peter and Karaka were just as surprised as was the group that were running. They ran diagonally away toward the heavy forest on the other side of the clearing. They had disturbed an unexpected quarry, and one after the other, the five people ran swiftly, stooping low for the nearby tree line. Karaka thought that they had come across a group of kids wagging school. The afternoon sun was still high and the light good enough to note some intriguing features that soon dispelled the first notion that runners were nine or ten-year-old school kids. The men could soon see that they were not children, but in fact were small, slightly built adults, and the stooping posture was to adopt a low profile as they ran. The angle of flight was more or less across the widest part of the clearing and all five people displayed a side view as they moved. Karaka noted that the figures had blonde shoulder-length hair and white skin. He was startled to notice that two of the group had white, close-cropped beards. These were not children at all. He could not tell whether the group was a mixture of male and female. The fleeing figures were naked to the waist and wore a short skirt-like garment around the middle made from a sharp elongated leaf. Their leaves were layered and bounced as they ran and were green in colour and appeared to have been freshly cut. Karaka is sure the leaves were from the Pufara Fare or Kia Kia plant. Some within the group also carried small baskets with lawn straps that crossed the torso on a diagonal from shoulder to hip. These objects appeared to be made from the leaves of the cabbage or titi tree. The fleeing figures crossed through two clear patches and were estimated to be in view for up to 40 seconds. 
When the group reached the forest edge, one of the figures stood fully erect and turned to look back where the two men were standing, and then, as if satisfied that they were not being followed, disappeared following the others into the trees. Karaka's first comment was, Boy, how they could run for such small people. It was decided that they were not children, lost or otherwise, and the two men did not follow them into the forest. They turned toward the clump of bush, all thoughts of pigeon hunting gone from their minds. Moving through the bush that had hidden the small folk from view, the men made a startling discovery. Behind the natural screen of small trees and brush was a mound of stones. Moving round to the other side, they saw that this was a structure rather than a stone heap. The stones had been built into an interlocking dome that measured about three metres across. A low-set door was soon found, but the narrow entrance was not accessible to either man because of their shoulder width. Karaka poked his head through the door and saw a perfect domed structure without any internal beams or supports. The stones used in the building were all of a similar size, between 100 to 150 millimetres, 4 to 6 inches across. The floor was earthen and angled upward toward the back wall opposite the door. Scattered on the floor was an assortment of berries, including the taerere fruit. There was also a plant known as poe tangatanga that is taken from the centre of the kia kia. Karaka said that this plant had many uses, the leaves weaving and the centre a nourishing food. He helped himself to a feed of this bush tucker. A further search found another domed building and the vicinity revealed a scattered pile of tafara leaves. This is another plant that, when the outer leaves are peeled back, provides a very delicious and tasty food. The flower of the tafara is also edible and the leaves can be fashioned into clothing, etc., Another pile of leaves contained a number of kiore or rat bones. So, here we have an example of smaller beings, but we also absolutely have experiences that are much more recent and that tell of beings of a more normal stature to us humans, such as this one experienced by a member of the Walking Shadowlands Facebook group who wishes to remain anonymous. Hi Marianne, I'd love to share my experience with the wonderful fairy folk. It was a few years ago now, myself and my boyfriend at the time were on our way to Rotorua for a little break away from home. We travelled through Taupo and ended up at a place on the outskirts of Taupo. My boyfriend at the time was a cheapie and didn't want to waste money on a hotel, so drove on to the outskirts of Taupo and headed up towards what I would call a valley where there was only a beautiful lake and a scenic reserve, where there was a track and a no camping here sign. My boyfriend, being the cheapie he is, pitched our tent even though I didn't want to stay there as I felt it was breaking the rules and somewhat had a feeling that we shouldn't stay there. During the night, I woke to laughter and chatting and seen a shadow standing over our tent and I started to worry and I tried to wake my boyfriend. As I tried to wake him, all of a sudden I heard a beautiful tui call and all of a sudden felt at ease. Early in the morning, I woke to the sun glistening upon our tent and woke my boyfriend as I wanted to make sure we had the tent down before anyone could see we stayed there, even though it said no camping and got into trouble. Thank goodness he got up and we both started to pack up the tent. I looked at the lake and the track that you could walk through and made it a priority to at least go take in all the beauty that laid before my eyes. 
We both started walking and I kept seeing a shadow going between the trees and I thought, what the fuck am I seeing? I ended up hearing music playing and ended up running off down the track and left my boyfriend behind, so to speak. As I came halfway or even further down the track, I felt like I was in a trance and could hear a chatter and felt myself being pulled off the track. All of a sudden, my cardigan I was wearing at the time came down on my right shoulder, which showed my tattoo. I then came out of what felt like a trance, and I looked to where I was. I was no longer on the track where I was previously. I was amongst native trees, and behind me was a stone wall. I then thought, what the fuck? Once again, and looked out to try to see the track I had been walking on. And a distance away from me, against a tree, there stood a fair-skinned, blondishly brown-haired man who had on brown pants and a brown-coloured shirt, who had been playing a red flute and placed it down in his brown satchel bag that he had over his shoulder. He says, Can you see me? And I replied, Yes. He then mimicked the way I would turn my head. He smiled, and I smiled also. After a good few minutes, I hear my boyfriend call out to me, and then I thought to myself, then and there, I have to get back on the track by following my boyfriend's voice. The man I had seen waved back at me to say bye and I'll see you again. He then whisked away amongst the trees. I kept calling out to my boyfriend so I could find my way back to the track. Once I got back on the track, I then ran to him, my boyfriend, and he says to me, Where did you go? I couldn't see you. You were in front of me and then disappeared as I looked back towards the car. I tried to explain what had just happened and he looked at me like, You're nuts, as per usual. Thinking of it now, it makes me truly grateful for all the magical moments I have encountered through my 31 years of life.
Ellen's experience, the woman encountered a more traditional-looking patipaerehe, from the hair colouring to his size down to the red flute he had been playing. What is interesting to note about her account is the feeling of having been in a trance and discovering herself way off the path she had been on. So, was she lucky to have seen the patipaerehe or to have snapped out of the trance when she did? What would have happened to her had she not? I am honestly a bit undecided if this experience was a sweet one or if there could have been some more nefarious intent behind it. This next experience is actually far scarier and again experienced by a lady who wishes to remain anonymous, but spoken in her own words. So when I was a kid, I don't know, I was really little, like three, four, maybe. We were, um, I grew up on our ancestral lands and Dad was farming on it. And, well, anyways, we went for a ride out to do some um, some fencing. I think it was fencing. Yeah, it was fencing. Went out for a ride to do some fencing and we went right to the back of the farm. And at the back of the farm, it's um, quite a spiritual tapu kind of a place you know it's it's not exactly a place where you kind of really would just go for a ride but it's the kind of place where you go if you have to you know if you have to do some maintenance or something like that otherwise you just leave everything at peace there right and we went out there it was me dad and mum and we went out on the bike, no no dogs, we had no animals with us, and we start, Dad was starting to fence, and as you do as a kid, you go for the nearest water source to go and play in it. <laughs> and I went down to have a look at the creek, and the creek was a bit too steep to get down to the water, but it didn't stop me from just walking along the edge and just throwing the old rock into the water and see if I can see any eels or crayfish or anything interesting down there. And as I was walking along, there was um, there was all these bulls in the creek, and because I knew that they weren't supposed to be in there, that's why Dad was fixing up the fences to keep them out of the creek. And well, anyways, I yelled out to Dad. I said, "Dad, there's bulls down in the creek." So he comes down, and he um, sees them. So he slides down to the bottom of the creek, and there was this really funny funny, strange mist that come all of a sudden out of the creek because we're talking, it was a hot day and it was like midday sort of thing. So there wouldn't be any opportunity for mist like that. And it just crept up the creek and then all of a sudden Dad screamed this blood-curdling scream and I seen some of the bulls come out and then when the mist cleared, because Dad's like trying to scramble up the bank because it was fairly steep, so this took a bit of time and and um, I was looking up the creek and watched the bulls come out across the creek and then when the mist cleared, I seen two bulls standing there and they were like frozen. There was just, they were just frozen and mid walk. And well, anyways, Dad was panicking and Mum was already on the bike and had it started and Dad was going, come on, go, let's go. And, and um, he scoops me up with one arm and runs to the bike, throws me on the bike, and we're heading off, and I'm sitting there all confused. And I ask them, what, what's wrong? Why did you scream, Dad? What was wrong with those bulls in the middle of the creek? 
why they were frozen. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, they just, on no, distracted me from my questions. Didn't answer any of them. They were both clearly upset about something, and I didn't know what. So I was just a little kid, and it was like later on. Very recently, I posted it onto your page asking you questions about it because it's just played on my mind ever since I was a little kid because no one still won't answer these questions. Yeah. And uh, it was you who clarified what had happened, that um, that it was actually the fairy folk and one of the um, side effects of splitting through dimensions is um, freezing time. Right. And which totally makes sense to me because when I, re- I remember, when I go back and remember this event, that I looked around and everything was frozen in time except for us. We were the only ones who weren't frozen in time. And then soon as we sort of got away from the area, everything was like back to normal and, yeah, the sheep were moving and birds were singing and everything. So, yeah. yeah. That was a pretty amazing experience. Did you did you speak to your dad about it after? I mean, after, I, after on the thread, I did. I said I asked dad about it, and I said to him what I'd learned from you, and um and he said that when he climbed to the bottom of that bank, that he saw um a mouldy figure heavily tattooed, um right in his face, just popped up out of nowhere. Um, poking out his tongue with his weapons, looked like he was going to whip his head off. And that's why he screamed and he had no idea. Yeah, so that was what made him scream. Right, and that's yeah. what I told you, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. It yeah. was exactly what you told me and it was exactly what he told me. And he said that down in that creek there, is um, burial caves where the our like my ancestors, the chiefs in that were laid to rest in caves, mm. and so it's these caves, and so so it's a bit of both that's going on down there in that particular area, and because mm. I because uh, I don't remember being scared, I was more curious. I wanted to know what was going on, and I asked you. Why wasn't I scared? And it's because I was just a little child and uh, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. You you were no threat. You were innocent. So, yeah, they, there's no way they would have targeted you. So that was really cool. And it was so cool that your dad verified what I told you. Yeah. Yeah. He said if I didn't ask you questions, he wouldn't have known what it was all about. And he definitely wouldn't have talk, spoken to me about what happened or what happened to him because he said that was just truly scary and he doesn't want to share that experience with anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was. Well, what I saw when I saw it, it was like all of a sudden it was like right there in your face and it would have been really scary because I saw the tattoos, the heavily tattoos, and and it, it was a very angry, scary face. So, yeah, your dad would have, um, yeah, I can understand his reaction absolutely. And, I I tend to have this feeling that your ancestors were buried there because of the sacredness of the area to begin with. Yes, that is the whole reason why, because um, they kind of knew, like, because this is, we're talking ancient times, this is like hundreds and hundreds of years ago before European even came. Right. That they started being buried there, that 
they sort of knew that things would change over time. And so they knew that if we got buried here, our bodies will never be disturbed. Ah, that was very clever, very forward thinking. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. cool. So, so actually, actually, what you what you did was in in asking the questions on the group, and um, and going back to your dad, you provided healing for your dad. Well, it's not only just healing for my dad, but it was also knowledge for our family at the same time. Oh, about, true, true, true. About what's you know what is actually going on down there, you know, because people, like, you know how you <laughs> you get curious and you just want to explore certain places because you're curious. Right. There are those places where you should never go. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Oh, that's... that's... So, you know, at least everybody in our family can be warned never ever go there. It's up to them if they want to go there or not, but they will truly get a fright just like yeah. my father did. And he didn't know about what was down there, never ever been in the creek because he never had to go in the creek before. Finally, we have this experience of another member of my Walking the Shadowlands Facebook group. This is Piata. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko māua o te maunga, ko tauranga te moana, ko ngai te rangi te iwi. Ko Piata rehi toku ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. I have been in this home for 15 years. It was new, brand new. It was the first home built on land. Um, I'm semi-rural West Auckland. So I'm surrounded by bush, paddocks and vineyards. Nice. But I'm still only five minutes from the mall and craziness. Um, yeah, so when I arrived here, there were no other homes. Um, and I tell everyone I'm the queen of the street, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we were the first house, didn't know anything about the history. Um, but from the very beginning, this home has been active, very, very active. Back, back in those days, yeah, probably too much for me to take in, actually. So much life came off this land. And, I, yeah, my dad had passed around the same time, so there was a lot going on. Um, but one night, it must have been summer, because I remember it being very warm and I had opened the door. Um, it was approximately 11 o'clock at night. I turned the TV on, thought, hey, no kids, I'm going to read a magazine. <laughs> so, yeah. No alcohol or anything else, just sat there reading my magazine and I heard a noise. And at first it it just sounded like laughter and I thought, those bloody kids are out, you know, out there playing at 11 o'clock at night. So I got up to have a look and um, at the front of my house I I have like a fence that encloses my backyard and I went to look at the fence near the roadway and it just, there was just a string, a string of patupaere here. That, I call them patupaere here. Uh, that's what we call them in Māori culture. But I guess um, in my mind, the best description I can give them are fairies. They were fairies. Uh, everything I had read, heard about them, to my eyes, they were fairies. Um, 
they had they were probably the size of like maybe a, a baby's a baby's clenched fist perhaps. Um, but I was able to just make out their features. They looked very much human. The thing was, they were all different colours. I'm I'm standing there thinking, oh, my God, it's Christmas lights. And then I thought, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Christmas lights, yeah, wading through the air. Um, they were all flying in, in a line formation, but there were a couple that kept breaking from the lines and, like, teasing teasing the others and it was their laughter I could hear the best way to describe the laughter to me um so if you take a a, a breath of helium gas that is the sound I heard that high-pitched laughter like, <laughs> yeah, kind of sounds a bit, bit scary when I do it um, <laughs> But, yes, the, the lights came through and I stood there watching. Earlier that day, I had been taking photos in the backyard. So the, the camera was still right there next to me by the door. So I grabbed the camera and I'm just like, click, 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 click. But anyway, after the lights, um, they started to go past my house through the yard. And then... Yeah, see, once again, I don't know, this eye or these eyes. I knew that the next ones that came through were children, um, mostly because of the way I felt about them. They, they were a young, pure, fresh energy, and you could just tell the way they were moving that they were kids. And then the kids, you know, you, as they went through, I don't know, there may have been maybe 40 of them all walking together um, as they move further, the ages got older. And then um, at the back of them were teenagers. And you could once again tell by their energy that that's the age that they were. And then there was like, I don't know, maybe a minute break. And then came the woman. And that was probably the only time I cried because I, I knew that that maternal mummy um, energy yeah it, it was like feeling myself yeah what I feel with my kids um, some of them were holding babies uh, they came through the older nannies and cordos came through but the beautiful thing about them like the pace really slowed by the time we got to the Kaimatua you know virtually slowly walking pace um, there were a few of them, I used to have a picnic table, and a few of them sat at the table and took a break. So in, in the pictures, yeah, in the pictures you can see the orbs on the table, but you can't tell what they're doing. But I, when it happened, I could see that they were sitting down. And then they got up and off they trotted again, and then it, it just... It grew really cold and really dark. And I felt, you know, I don't know whether Auckland had an earthquake that night, but I felt the ground shake. And when I was like, I was breathing really heavily and I could see the, the mist coming out of my mouth. So I knew that I wasn't imagining the temperature. 
but then um, the ground started to shake. And right at the back of all this long line, um, long line of beautiful souls were maybe 12 warriors, tamatoa we call them. But, um, yeah, back in the day um, when Māori went to war, they a lot of the time they did the haka, and, and that was the pace that these warriors were moving. They uh, were all naked apart from a maro. A maro is like a piece of cloth that's placed at the front of their body to yeah, to keep them decent. They only had a maro and they were holding um, taiaha, which are wooden spears. But it just kind of moved through like, oh, 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 oh. And it just went through. And then the ground stopped shaking and the air was warm and they were gone. I later found out from the, the local iwi, which is the local tribe from this area of Auckland, they um, said to me that there used to be a walking track all the way from like um, East Auckland. So in the walking track uh, went right across and um, in my area, the walking track um, is adjacent. We have a stream at the end of our street that runs all the way to the Waitakere Ranges. Oh, wow. So apparently where I saw them was the walking track that they used alongside the river. And where, where my house is, or sorry, where my backyard is, is directly over that road. So following Piata's experience, you can see that we have Patipare here throughout New Zealand in different sizes and different forms, from the punaturi to the more traditional human-sized Patipare here to the little more traditional fairy-sized Patipare here. In this episode, we've covered the Patipahere quite extensively. We've heard experiences from people, very recent experiences from some, and we've learned a bit about what they look like and where they live. Today's music is another traditional Māori wāta, Pokarikari ana, which is a traditional Māori love song. Again, I don't know the name of the singers, so please let me know if you recognise any of the voices. If you have any questions for me at any time, then feel free to email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com with suggestions for subjects you'd like me to cover. And if I don't know them, then absolutely I will research and learn as much as I can to share with you all. If you've enjoyed these episodes, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on iTunes. Who knows, you may hear your review read out at the end of an episode like these reviews. So, get writing. Vikestar66 from Australia says, I love listening to others' experiences. There is so much out there that we don't know about or fully understand. These podcasts delve into those subjects that we all hear about. Have a listen. They will give you goosebumps. Nikki Nickerson from Australia says, 
Clearly, well-researched with really interesting subject matter and guest stories. Spooky at times, but that's part of what makes it interesting. 79 Queen Bee from the United States of America. Very informative. I would definitely check out the new shows. Mitchie, 2019 from New Zealand, says, I love these podcasts, really enjoying the topics and content. Keep them coming. And finally, for this month, Sarah Bump Bump from New Zealand. I am really enjoying these podcasts. All episodes are intriguing, interesting and mind-blowing. Highly recommended. You won't be disappointed. And of course, so you don't miss out on our next episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting platform. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show and encourage them to listen and to subscribe also, the more the merrier. And as always, I would love to hear your experiences or your thoughts. Please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website, check out our Facebook page, like and follow it for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 